Hello and welcome to the Leaders' Council podcast, the podcast for the people who run the country and the people who keep the country running. You join us on another cloudy day here in the capital as once again we ensure we have a variety of distinct perspectives on leadership. My name is Scott Chaloner and I'm delighted to be joined on the programme today by Richard Brown. Richard is the Chief Executive of Listening Ear and Amparo. Listening Ear Merseyside provides an acclaimed counselling service for children, young people and adults affected by bereavement, while Amparo supports those bereaved by suicide. Richard, very warm welcome to you and thank you ever so much for taking the time to join us on today's programme. No problem, it's great to be here. It's a real pleasure having you with us, Richard. Um, The purpose of this discussion, first and foremost, is to establish your take on leadership. So if we dive straight in by taking that word leader aside for a moment and exploring it in a little bit more depth, I'm interested to know what that word means to you and what you feel a leader should be. Leadership is a really interesting um, feature of of the work people do and and how they engage, particularly in the workplace. Um, One of the things for me, that is important around leadership is having to do the jobs that need doing. Sometimes you look at a problem or an issue and you think, oh, I really don't want to deal with that. But true leadership says, I don't want to deal with it, but it needs to be done. It's important. So we've we've got to pick it up. And no matter how painful it is to do, you have to do it. And I think, I know that sounds like a negative form of leadership, but for me, I think it's a really important element of it because it demonstrates that no matter what is coming at you in the workplace, you're prepared to deal with that problem and and think about it in a rational way and um, ensure that the, the solution that you come to is the correct solution and that you can then implement what needs to be done. For me, that, like I say, that's a really important part of leadership. Um, it demonstrates to particularly to the people who work for you, that you will do things and you will get things done um, in, a, in, a, in a way that you're not affected by it. Um, negative opinions or personal preference. It's about doing the right thing at the right time. It's about taking ownership and responsibility of situations, um, isn't it? Even if, of course, whatever may be going right or wrong isn't necessarily completely down to you. But as a leader, the buck does stop with you and you have to assume that responsibility. And I think it is fair to say that leaders themselves have had to really step up to the plate over the last few months as we've got Mm. to grips with the COVID-19 pandemic and the fact that we've had to chart a course through this uncharted uh, territory. Um, tell me, Richard, um, for yourselves, how has it been attempting to navigate the last few weeks and months? Because obviously mental health and well-being has really been at the forefront of our minds during this entire period. It's um, It's been a challenging period. I, would, I won't deny it. Um, we started planning for this really um, in, in early March. Um, we had a business continuity plan like every other organisation had or should have um, and when when we looked at what it's after pandemic because we'd never been through it we'd never you know never experienced it didn't have any um, point of reference for what needed to be done it was almost like we had to completely rewrite everything that we needed doing so um, as the government you know was was trying to provide um, advice and guidance about what to happen what, what would be happening and that was changing reasonably regularly again because this is a situation that no one's been in before we we took a decision to say what's the worst case scenario that could happen and the worst case scenario 
in terms of delivering a service was for it all to be done remotely, everybody working from home. So we, we made that decision, um, I think, on the 12th of March and then started planning the week after from the 15th of March. And it's quite a task to um, migrate all your staff, not just physically working in a different place, i.e. not in the office or not in the external sites that we do, but that you'll be working from home so you won't see your colleagues very much. Um, and also for the councillors, because they wouldn't be doing in-person counselling, they'd need to get to understand how you deliver telephone counselling to start with. So that was quite a challenge. And a lot of the part of the challenge was um, we had all the equipment that we needed because all the, the staff, we, we, we had a hot desking policy where people could work on different desks and different workstations when they were available. Obviously, you can't do that um, in the current situation. But to get everyone to work from home meant we had to get a laptop and a mobile phone for every member of staff so that all had to be compliant with GDPR. Um, so all those criteria just to physically get people to work from home and to understand what it would mean to work from home. Then we had to draw up a whole range of policies and procedures because they all changed. All our risk assessments changed. Our contracting changed because we, we weren't doing it in person, so you, you couldn't ask people to sign a, a contract. It would have to all be done verbally. So we had to get authorization that, that a verbal confirmation for a contract was um, okay. So every little aspect of the processes that we went through had to be looked at and, and changed. And at the time, you know, we again, I said before, we didn't have a point of reference. So we had to go with what we thought would be the, the right way of doing something. So we've, we've set all that up in place. Um, we, we split everyone into working teams and every team has a team meeting via Zoom once a week just so we can keep in touch with everyone and they can all see each other regularly. And all those small things about someone having a, a place of work where they they are comfortable with it all needed to be put in place. So that, that was quite a challenge. We managed to do that in a week so that from the week of the 15th of March was all that planning and then we went live the week after I think the 23rd of March as um, remote delivered service via the telephone it was a slightly easier than if we had no experience of that at all the Amparo team who work across the country have always been based working from home so we could use those experiences um, and methods of working to inform us to a degree about how it would work. But of course, Amparo is different than counselling. And that, that, that point of difference is, is quite significant. So we said to start with, it would all be telephone counselling for the adults and for the children and people. And that proves a problem because lots of the children we work with are five, six, seven years old that maybe have been through a bereavement or they've um, witnessed domestic abuse, or they're a child looked after. And having a telephone counselling session with under 11 is, is really, really challenging. And what we said we would do in that instance is we would, in the, we would work with the parents or the carers or the guardian of that child to inform them of, of, of how in this short term, while we were working out the best process to interact with people, how they could help their child. 
So we, we ran that process for a number of weeks and then we started to train our staff in um, online and telephone-based counselling so that they were all comfortable in that approach. And then we trialled video platform conference counselling, so the likes of Zoom or FaceTime. We then introduced that on a trial basis and that really improved the traction rate that we were getting with people engaging with the service. And so as we moved through this whole COVID situation, the vision is to have more of the video support because we're thinking that's what works well. In addition to that, what we're going to be trialing is, with particularly with the adults of the children, is to, to offer them counselling to start with so that they can understand what the process is and then they can then say to the children, actually, we've tried telephone support. It works really well and we'd encourage you to do it. So we're always trying to in, ensure that we can w- work with all the vulnerable people that have been referred into us. Mm, sounds like there's been plenty going on uh, during this uh, period for sure um, and mm. also there'll be plenty uh, to get your teeth into um, over the next few months as well as we adjust to the challenges of the uh, the new normal and it seems as if there are some features of this lockdown period that you're taking as a positive particularly that sort of remote provision side of things and may become a permanent way um, that you um, of course carry out your services um, in fact over the course of the uh, the next 12 or so months what do you think, Richard, is on the horizon for yourself for listening here for Amparo? And what do you really hope to achieve as you adjust to this new normal? Well, what we'd like to see over the next 12 months is um, increased referrals coming into the into the organisation. I think when Mr Johnson in a speech recently mentioned the word hibernation, um, it's almost like there's a feeling that people were hibernating and now that the lockdown is, some of the lockdown rules have been relaxed, people are starting to come out more. Most of the people that we work with have been referred into us. And I think what was happening is because the people who would normally refer in weren't actually going out to meet people, our referrals did drop slightly. Um, but now that those services are coming back and up and running again, that we were starting to see the increase in referrals coming into the system. Uh, so what we want to do is just to work with as many people as we can um, and providing the best service that we can to those people. And that's always been an ambition of ours. So we've actually started a number of different um, pieces of work during the lockdown period. We, we've started up um, a helpline, a free phone helpline for um people who are based in South Yorkshire who've been bereaved during the COVID situation, not necessarily bereaved by COVID. But what, what, when we talked to the commissioners in South Yorkshire, they were very clear that, and we were quite in agreement with them, that people who've been bereaved during this period, it's, it's almost like um, a suicide bereavement because it's really traumatic. So what we could do is we could apply the methodology of the Amparo service and then transfer that into a helpline. And that's worked really well. So um, we ran an eight-week pilot to start with, and it's now been um, recommissioned to the end of the calendar year. Um, So towards the autumn, we'll have another assessment of the impact of that service, and um, we'll, we'll see where that takes us. But what we've already seen is some people with underlying mental health Issues who can't access any of the services are accessing the helpline, so that's a, a fantastic lifeline for them. But we're also finding 
extremely socially isolated people accessing the helpline and the feedback we're getting from them is that's their only point of contact with anyone in the whole week. So it's a, it, it's having a, um, outcomes that we didn't kind of predict would happen, but a positive outcomes nevertheless. So we, we've also done it for staff of a local authority, and that's been quite similar, um, that helpline support. So we're really pleased with, with the, the process that we put in place for that to, um, to work with people. In, in, who are really um, isolated and vulnerable. But we've also extended other contracts of work. So we're, we're extending our domestic abuse work wider and hopefully we, we our children looked after work will expand as well. Certainly seems as if there's going to be a need for those services as we exit lockdown, given, of course, the impact that being in lockdown has had on mental health, domestic violence levels, that sort of thing. Um, so mm-hmm. I actually think, Richard, um, given that there are still plenty of things to talk about here, it would be wonderful to perhaps have you back on the show with us in future to discuss where we're at um, in a few months' time, see how things no, at Listening You and Amparo are getting on and just assess where we're at as a society at that point. Yeah, that would be wonderful to let you know what's actually happened because mm. we, we were almost sitting there waiting and someone said to me recently they're expecting a tsunami of referrals and mm. it, it's it's a similar thing that we're, all the services are now set up, ready. We've been working all the way through lockdown, providing support, counselling support, but as you rightly say, once people are starting to come out more, particularly with domestic abuse, we think that that will increase rapidly. Mm. It, there's certainly a great amount of worry about that going forward and let's hope that we're not going to see a whole new pandemic of such cases um, as we uh, do exit the uh, the lockdown for sure. Um, Richard, yeah. I have to say um, it's been a real pleasure and also an incredibly insightful experience having you join us today to discuss some of these issues. And until we, uh, we welcome you back on the, uh, the programme, which I'm sure we will do in future, please do take care and stay safe with all still going on because there are still a great many variables in this. We don't know whether we will be going into lockdown again after a second mm-hmm. spike of cases. So let's just keep our fingers crossed that it is going to be upward trajectory from here okay yeah thank you i'd welcome that opportunity likewise richard thank you ever so much again for your time that was richard brown speaking there chief executive of listening here and amparo coming up next on the program today i'll be handing over to jonathan white for his exclusive interview with england's 1966 fifa world cup hero Sir Jeff Hurst. During his professional career, Sir Jeff scored over 200 league goals for the likes of West Ham United and Stoke City, but most notably he remains the only man to this day to have scored a hat-trick in the final of a FIFA World Cup competition after his treble in England's 4-2 win over West Germany at the old Wembley Stadium 54 long years ago now. I hope that you enjoy listening just as much as Jonathan relished the opportunity to speak with Sir Jeff and all of that is of course coming up next. Uh, we're now joined, uh, though, by former England footballer and still the only man to score a hat-trick in a World Cup final, Sir Jeff Hurst. Uh, thank you very much for coming on today. Uh, You're welcome. You're welcome. Good afternoon. Uh, and perhaps I should uh, start and get it over and done with. I know you must be bored with it and uh, you've probably been asked a thousand times. But when you got out for a duck playing for Essex, uh, Jeff, what was going through your head at the time? <laughs> well, of course, that's not one of the most asked questions I get. Oh, there, there are one or two people who are very familiar um, who, who do Google me who realise that I did uh, score nothing for Essex. Uh, for my only game for Essex first team 
when we played against Lancashire in Liverpool, a place called uh, uh, Egbert in, in, uh, in Liverpool, many, many years ago, 1962, I think that was. So I didn't, and, um, yes, I, I didn't really feel it at the time. It was lucky to be <laughs> playing, I guess, with one or two injuries. Um, but the problem that I had was, was really messing about between the two sports. That was very detrimental to me uh, over that period of time, mm. being stuck between the two sports. And I think uh, for those that uh, don't know, there's a there's a, another world that might exist where um, Sir Jeff Hurst was a, a first-class cricketer and not perhaps a, a footballer. But um, whether it's business or cricket or, or football, obviously the importance of leadership, it can't be understated, no matter what form that comes in. When you were at West Ham, uh, Jeff, and when um, Ron Greenwood first uh, uh, came along, he made obviously some pretty radical changes was this a man that genuinely inspired confidence uh, the first time you'd meet him? Absolutely. I mean, he, he was simply a, a fantastic uh, coach or teacher, if you like, at, at football. And uh, the, the quite always mentioned when we talk about Ron Greenwood, Harry Redknapp, who was played under him and has been very successful as a player and, and a manager over many, many, many years. He um, He's come across many coaches, of course, and managers during his time over years, I guess he would still say that Ron Greenwood is the best coach he had worked with. He'd worked with. So you're very fortunate. I think you, you think you're lucky when you come across if you have a great teacher at school and a great coach as we had in Ron Greenwood and, of course, a great manager in South Ramsey. So to come across people like that of that calibre can have a huge influence on your your career, of course, and, and then your life. And that's that's quite purely the case. Absolutely. And in those early days um, at West Ham, uh, with, with a manager like, like uh, Ron uh, there, it's also important to have uh, uh, confidence with your other players. And of course, they become your friends. Who did you look at to at the time uh, when to inspire confidence in yourself? Was it more? Was it Peter's? I think probably, well, I was very fortunate to play with the colour of the players I did. Again, again, extremely fortunate to play with you know, the captain um, of England and West Ham and Martin Peters, who was a fantastic player. And some, as far as Martin's concerned, I think sometimes he didn't quite get the uh, recognition he deserved. What a wonderful player he was. In terms of inspiring confidence, I always probably say that the biggest influence uh, for me, I guess, would be the captain, Bob Moore. Although he was only... Uh, about eight months older than me, he graduated through the system probably three or four years earlier. He played for England in 62, four years before the final when I played. And so he, he was more, looked upon him more as a senior player, if you like, not as a, a guy with the same age group as me. And I looked at how he how he uh, trained, how he acted, how he behaved, and how he played. And so he, he would say, I would also say he was a big influence on me. One thing I would say about leadership, uh, what I do, I do understand clearly all walks of life. Leadership is at the top, is absolutely vital for a, a, for a business, a football team, in any walk of life to be successful. And it's quite evident. I was in the motor trade for a long time as well, selling car warranties to car dealerships. And you could almost tell when you walked into the business, uh, in a, many of the car dealerships, you could almost tell from the moment you walked in by initial reaction people came and welcomed you 
that the business is well run or conversely not well run at all. And so I understand the, the, the value and quality of leadership. And that's why I'm very fortunate to be involved with my career in those early days with two, two great leaders in, in Ron Greenwood and, and Alf Ramsey. Absolutely. And um, since you've already uh, brought him up, uh, Jeff, I think it'd be remiss not to go a little bit further with that. But obviously, uh, after uh, oh, at West Ham, your uh, plane came to the attention of uh, South Ramsey. Now, there's a man, I'm sure, when you walked into a room, you knew who was um, in charge. When it came to managing that England team, what was his style like, Jeff? Well, one thing, especially with Alf Ramsey, he's probably over my life the most powerful influence who had on me um, as a person. Um, mm. Naturally, it happens to an extent because he's got your whole career in his hand, whether he picks you for England or he doesn't pick you. It can have a great impact on your, <laughs> your career and, of course, your life. But yep. in that era, I was involved for six or seven years. He, it was quite clear who was the boss. He was quite very, very strict. Probably at a time... At, Maybe overly strict, but at times you probably wouldn't get necessarily get away with it in, in today's football because it's changed dramatically in how you deal with with players then and players now. But he was the most powerful man I came across, and very few people. And he, he was quite ruthless in getting people out who didn't want to be who didn't want to be part of a group, part of a team. It is important that if you've got a group of people, and that's in any walk of life, they're all singing off the same hymn sheet, and you don't have anybody that's griping or moaning about the system. And if you've got people like that in the organisation, one thing I have learned and I've taken on in my life, my family, you've got somebody in the group that doesn't want to be part of it, you, you get them out. And Alf, I think, was was quite ruthless with that in his, in his staff. And I think that's one, thing I, one of the most serious ones I think I've learned over a long period of time. And is there, do you think... Uh a specific moment, I'm sure there's probably dozens, but is there a specific moment, if you could uh, perhaps pick right now, that did show those uh, qualities in uh, Sir Alf so uh, sharply? Yes, I think for, for me, certainly, um, I think there are instances of players who you thought would, would be in the team, or certainly in the squad, and surprising there were not. There was no necessary reason for it, but looking mm. back, I do think perhaps they were people that Alf didn't think wanted to be part of a group. Um, so that that's that's for me. In terms of my personal view, I think that it looked prior to the um, World Cup that I was going to be playing um, in it only a few games before. I was I was playing and I played with Jimmy Greaves in the game against Yugoslavia only a couple of months before the final. And it looked at that stage as if I was going to be, be playing. In, in the team but uh, in a couple of friendly games more friendly games before the final in Poland and uh, uh, Norway I think in Denmark mm. I didn't I played two of the four games and I probably didn't quite replicate my my form that I'd been showing at West Ham and in the early couple of games for England and he he left me out in the first game of, of the World Cup against uh, Uruguay he started off with Jimmy Green so mm. I, I had an impact of thinking I, at that stage I like I was going to play and didn't start because of just a lack of form. I didn't play quite well enough to justify my position. And somewhat fortuitously, I only got back in the team because of a, a nasty gash to shin um, on Jimmy Lee's leg. 
And I think what you've said there, uh, Jeff, actually does sum that up really well. And more than that, whilst it's important to have that someone in charge with those qualities, it's almost useless if there isn't a strong and unified team behind them. And there really must have been moments, maybe there weren't, but uh, let us know in that 66 competition, the prolonged pressure on all of you, you know, the weight of a nation, did it get to you? Oh, not for me personally, no. I I think, and I don't, uh, not for me, not for a second. I think Mm. I was just happy to be, you know, be involved in the squad initially. Um, Not at all. I didn't, you're not aware of the magnitude of the occasion, really, looking back out, out. So I never really felt people talk about pressure a lot and it's there and people players talk about people talk about it in life. I didn't really feel necessary to feel any great pressure pressure during the time I was there. And what is also important to say about Alf Ramsey, the people he, he left behind that were left in the squad after he'd moved one or two players out, the squad were uh, a, a bunch of very hard-nosed, professional, uh, top-quality people. And that was, again the leadership that I'll show you, you got people in together that were very, very strong personally. Um, uh, and I think that was part of the success we had. We were very, I always describe our, our group as hard-nosed professionals. Uh, we had some great players, but overall they were great hard-nosed professional players um, and great quality people who we've kept in contact with, you know, over the years. And Jeff, I've got to ask, and I'm, I'm not making this up, I've genuinely heard that people do ask you whether or not you realise there were people on the pitch at that moment. I imagine you were busy on something else. Well, I, I did some theatre shows last year. They've gone fairly well, and we're going to do a series of uh, theatre shows. In fact, starting this week, over the next uh, two or three months. And uh, at the end of the theatre shows, we have about 20 minutes where we uh, uh, allow the people in the audience to ask questions. And the, the, there's, I won't mention both. They're too long to talk about both questions. Um, one, the other one's a really stupid one. It's too long for me to tell you. It's absolutely ridiculous. Yeah. But the, the, the other ridiculous question I get asked, did I realise there were people on the pitch? And, of course, I jokingly say, yes, I was just about to, to shoot to score the goal. And I looked round, put my foot on the ball, and looked round for a little while, and said, "Oh dear, there are six or seven people running on the pitch." So that—I've uh, had been asked that once at one of the theatre shows. <laughs> so I joke, make a joke about that, and saying, "Yes, I put my foot on the ball and waited, but just had a, look, had a glance round, you know." Maybe it does prove there are things that, such as stupid questions, really. Um... Oh yeah, there are. There certainly are. I've got another one which I won't bore you with. It won't be <laughs> too long to tell you. Uh, I was in a Jersey or Channel Line, Jersey or Jersey, two or three years ago, and most stupid, irrelevant questions, absolutely nothing to do with football whatsoever, which uh, was absolutely. But I can use that now because it, it is quite funny. <laughs> <laughs> well, maybe another time then. But we. Um, uh, well, you want me, I, I can tell you if you want. You want. You got time? I can tell, I tell you if you want. Jeff, go on. Go. On. I think I'd be, it would be silly if I said no at this point. Okay, so I was uh, doing a. a at a dinner in the Channel Lines, three or four hundred people, black tie dinner, uh, guest of honor. Mm-hmm. And this occasion, I was speaking for about 20 minutes, then allowing uh, questions from the audience at the end of the evening. And there was usual football questions. And then all of a sudden, I heard a, somebody at the back who 
who asked the question. I didn't quite hear what he said. He didn't have the microphone with him. So I said, I didn't hear what he said. Can you please give this chap the microphone so I can hear clearly what he said? So the chap had the mic and he said, when a turtle loses itself, is it naked or is it homeless? Right. <laughs> what a question. What a question. Uh, well, I think that would be in, definitely in the stupid category, wouldn't it? So we had a laugh about that. Is- uh, well, uh, and we, you've got to have a patient of a saint, I think, sometimes to put up with <laughs> well, things no, like that. Just, but then I again, found it amusing. I just found it amusing. In fact, some of the audience found it highly amusing as well. So it did, uh, um, it did make again, laugh that If you can put up with my questions, you can probably put up with uh, anything. <laughs> um, but there, there would have become a point, though, um, Jeff, I think um, you, you were a young man when see this happened when you must have realized that people teammates began looking at you for leadership um is that something that occurred to you or did you just realize that by by quick one way or the other people actually begin to look up for you for inspiration well possibly that's never really struck me until you've actually mentioned it now quite frankly that's a new a new question mm. does anybody look up to me? I'm sure perhaps uh, there are there are people who pay you compliments of, of uh, fans of, of West Ham and uh, of Stoke and of course in, uh, England fans who um, I, I think probably uh, it would be very immodest of me to to suggest I, I felt that somebody was looking to me for inspiration. Um, you, but, you don't but, have to, but I will. Uh, well, um, it's, it's okay for a third party to do it. Uh, perhaps, um, perhaps that may have been the case over the years. Uh, people look at you, and um, uh, maybe uh, it has a, a helpful effect. Uh, but I do think you, you, how you behave and set examples on and off the pitch, is, people must realise that that's, that has an influence. How you react and behave mm. to, to situations on and off the field surely probably has an impact to younger players coming in into the team latterly. Um, yeah. And and with that, looking at um, uh, football today, uh, is there anybody that you think particularly on the field or the sidelines that strikes you as someone with um, those qualities that you could identify in a, in a natural leader? Um. Well, a player, current players, you mean? Oh, players, managers, anybody that uh, you look to today, really? Well, I think some of the outstanding. I think the, the, the best example about a, a leader and at the moment is is, is uh, Klopp at Liverpool. Mm. He has been absolutely fantastic to uh, acquire the players and get them to their attitude. Is absolutely fantastic. They're great players, but. There's more than just being good players in football. It's a good player with a fantastic attitude and their willingness to work for each other and the team is absolutely outstanding. Hence these unbelievable results. There are, you know, and the great players not always succeed as, as individuals or probably even uh, certainly as a team if you haven't got the right attitude alongside it. And they're probably, and that, that comes through the leadership. That's not just luck that's absolutely. that's absolutely leading show he'd be the best example of course in, in football terms today uh, easily easily and of course but going back not that long ago Alex Ferguson who's just absolutely mm. 
you've got to take him as the first example because Klopp's only done this over a period of time, a short period of time. But if you look at the 25, 26, 27 years that Alex Ferguson did with Manchester United and subsequently since he's gone, how they they are not doing so well. He's the best example of management I've seen, we've seen, we've probably ever seen. And I don't think anybody will see the light of that kind of leadership again. It's ast- absolutely astonishing, astonishing. And do you think, could you imagine uh, Sir Alf or even Ron Greenwood managing teams today? Yes, I think so. I think, yes, no, mm. no question at all. I think they, uh, Ron Greenwood, yeah, well, the, the answer, straightforward answer is yes. Um, good they, <laughs> the straightforward answer is yes. I can elaborate as much as you want, but the straight answer is absolutely categorically yes. Uh, and with, um, I know uh, if we could talk about this probably for the next hour or so, but um, I'm conscious of the um, time. Um, looking um, back uh, through your um, playing career, perhaps especially um, your time uh, for England. Who was it uh, that struck you more than anyone else on the pitch uh, that displayed qualities of not just leadership but uh, companionship and and level headedness that you think that have stuck with you all these years later? Well, I think we were very fortunate, and I wouldn't take any one player out. I think looking at so that, so many, yeah, so many, and that's why we were successful because we had so many. Um, showing all those qualities that you just mentioned uh, throughout the team, I think that that was outstanding, and uh, and it's an opportunity to talk about uh, all of them in, in that breath. And there was nobody. And going back on an earlier earlier question for me, that um, all hard nosed professionals, good good teammates, mm. good socially, and that's why we kept in touch with each other on our golf days. Every year, uh, up until about five years ago, of course, with, with the uh, sadly dwindling yes. numbers, we we still got on. Our wives got on with all together. All those years later, it didn't just finish after '66. That reunion, that camaraderie, that team spirit, mm. um, getting on with each other, lasted for, for a long, long, long time. And I wouldn't I'm... when it, when you put those those questions and how you categorise those. I would pick every one of the 11 players um, who you put in that category that were like that. There was nobody else. They were all outstanding. And I think that was a big part. I can't stress how big a part that was. And I've said that many, many times for the success of the team. We had some great players. We had some great players, of course. But without the attitude (laughs) alongside that, going back to an earlier question, we wouldn't have been as uh, ultimately, ultimately as successful. Exactly. Without that, you, the, the the whole will never be greater than the sum of its parts. But with it, yes, the word, the word is team. the word is the word is team. Absolutely. And I always use the word team when I talk. Sometimes you know, together, everyone achieves more, and that that's the same in any walk of life. That, that's fundamental. And uh, lastly, Jeff, uh, looking if if you were to uh, give advice, and whether this is in sport or business or indeed any other walk of life. What would you identify, if you can, as the key tenant uh, that you can't go without in terms of leading a team, no matter what that team is? Single-mindedness, single-mindedness, dedication, dedication to the job, um, 
thinking about that 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 role, that job in leadership all the time. It's a huge part of your life. But if you, I don't think you can switch off when you're in, in business at the top level or sport at the top level. You may, you know, have a, way, have a couple of weeks holiday, but I'm even sure if, if these top managers and lead, leaders in all walks of life are away on holiday on a beach somewhere warm, I'm sure there's not, uh, there's, they will not switch off for, for two weeks um, and completely uh, not think about their role as the boss of an organisation. And I think that's, you're completely focused, you're always thinking about uh, things, thinking about improvements, and it's just dedication and uh, uh, tuning your life to being successful. Excellent. Well, Jeff, on that point, thank you very much for joining us today. You're welcome. Very good to nice to have a talk about this and just go over the go over the past and just uh, refresh my mem- my own memory about the quality of the players I grew up with. Excellent. Uh, another time, uh, it would be great to talk again. Thank, thank you, Jonathan. Thank you. This has been the Leaders Council podcast. Thank you for celebrating excellence in leadership with us. I've been your host, Scott Challoner. Until next time, goodbye. Thank you for listening to our podcast. The views expressed within the podcast do not reflect the views of the Leaders' Council of Great Britain and Northern Ireland, its parent company or subsidiaries, members of staff, or other guests of any other person therein associated.